Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is speaking with his disciples just before he goes to the cross. And he identifies that the the temple, Herod's temple, would be destroyed and not one stone would be left upon another. I'll pick up the story here in Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. I've been reading these scriptures for going on 40 years. And I have consistently focused on the next signs that he speaks of, nation against nation, rumors of wars and famines and plagues and stuff like that. But somehow or another, I completely missed the first thing that Jesus said about the signs of the end. Take heed that no man deceive you. The Bible speaks of a great departure from the faith It speaks of a lot of people that will turn their back on the truth that they had embraced. But notice also, it said, take heed that no man deceive you. He didn't say take heed that the devil didn't deceive you. I think, uh, well, I don't know if it's just the way that I approach things or if other people think the same thing. But it seems to me that I've been guilty up until these last couple of years of compartmentalizing. What I mean by that is there's a a walk that we have with God, a Christian walk, part of our Christian life. But then on the other hand, there's the life that we lead in, in the world. Jesus didn't say, take heed that no, ma- no pastor deceive you. He didn't say, take heed that no apostle deceive you or prophet deceive you. He said, take heed that no man deceive you. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writing to, to his Timothy, his closest ministry companion, verse 1, now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that means specifically or distinctly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Here's another scripture that I've been guilty of narrowing down. I've always tried to focus on the seducing spirits and the doctrines of devil part. But notice the next verse is really the point. Speaking lies and hypocrisy having their conscience seared with a hot iron, speaking lies into hypocrisy. Folks, we've got a world that we live in that is running on the fuel of lies and hypocrisy. We've got a condition called a pandemic of the coronavirus we've got a situation where people are saying trust the science and the scientific discoveries and progress is amazing the things that are being discovered are mind-boggling We live in a day that I don't have trouble trusting the science. I have trouble trusting the scientists. We're living in a world that's focusing on lies, half-truths, 
and cover-ups. Now, for me, the, the dividing line on where this thing really jumps the rails is what's happening with this mask mandate for kids. This coronavirus has been around long enough now for studies to have been completed and for us to know what we're doing, whereas a year and a half ago it might have been a shot in the dark. There's no shots in the dark anymore. The studies have conclusively identified that the least group at risk are the kids. And they've also done studies that have identified the harm to children from wearing these masks. They've been able to identify elevated CO2 levels in children that wear these masks for eight hours a day. And they've even concluded through research that breathing these cotton fibers for extended periods of time does much damage to the children. Here's my problem. When you've got a group of people that are willing to push something that there's no dispute endangers children, endangers their health, and endangers their lives, then folks, you're dealing with evil on a magnitude that's beyond anything we've experienced. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. You remember Joshua chapter 1 verse 8? Joshua takes over for Moses as the leader of the children of Israel. God speaks with, with uh, Joshua. He makes some outstanding promises to him. He said, I'll be with you just like I was with Moses. And no man will be able to stand before you. But he encourages him to be courageous. I've always wondered about that. If God says he's with you, like Moses, and he spoke face to face with Moses, then why was the importance placed on Joshua being courageous? Well, the answer to that, folks, is really pretty simple. And that is, there are going to be times where it doesn't look like God's with them. There are going to be circumstances that don't specifically point to the miracle working power of God, at least on the time frame that Joshua would want it or that we would want it. And so it's going to take courage to stand before your enemies. And so God tells him how to develop that courage. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. One translation translates the last part of that verse, is thou shalt deal wisely in the affairs of life. Thou shalt deal wisely in the affairs of life. You couldn't prosper if you, didn't do, if you didn't deal wisely in the affairs of life. There's not much success available apart from our dealing wisely in the affairs of life. Dealing wisely in the affairs of life literally means that God will provide you wisdom to know what to do. Now I want to talk to you about the wisdom of God this morning. And I want to read a couple of things to you. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. It says, Wisdom rests in the heart of him that has understanding. 
but that which is in the midst of fools is made known. Both of these verses of Scripture identify the path to wisdom. That path to wisdom is first a desire to get understanding. Now, understanding is of the soul. Understanding is the mind and the will in action or in pursuit of God's Word. When we choose to follow the Word of God, to speak the Word of God, which is what meditate means, in Joshua 1.8, it means to mutter, M-U-T-T-E-R, or to say to yourself over and over again. Meditating in the Word is confessing God's Word. I think a lot of people get thrown off by the word meditate because they think of Eastern religions, how somebody's sitting in a lotus position and humming, or whatever they're supposed to do. That kind of meditation is to empty the mind. Bible meditation has nothing to do with emptying your mind. It has everything to do with filling your mind with the truth of the word. Now, another one of the other scriptures that we just read, wisdom rests in the heart of him that has understanding. When we commit ourselves in the pursuit of God's word to understand it, to renew our minds to it, then wisdom becomes a part of the inner man. It becomes a part of the the real you. The one that was born again by the precious blood of Jesus. So wisdom is something that we can incorporate and should incorporate into our lives. Not just our church life, but in every aspect of life. Now I want you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that I incline thine ear unto understanding and wisdom and apply thy heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and lift up thy voice for understanding, there's confession, the speaking of the word. If thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. The fear of the Lord is putting God first and putting his word first in your life. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 13 I think it is says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buffler to them that walk uprightly. That word buffler means shield. He keepeth the paths of judgment and preserves the way of the saints. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, every good path. When wisdom enters into your heart and knowledge is pleasant unto your soul, discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee. This word discretion is the word plan. Wisdom is the the pathway to finding God's plan for your life. Now this is very similar to what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. In verse 1 he talks about presenting your body a living sacrifice. But in verse 2, Romans 12, 2, it says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove or experience What is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? Renewing of the mind, pursuing wisdom, those are interchangeable terms. Pursuing wisdom by speaking the word of God causes a deposit of God's wisdom into your heart for you to work, uh, have something, a tool for you to deal wisely in the affairs of life a tool for prosperity, a tool for success. God's plans will bring you through. Now, if you keep reading, it talks about the deliverance that God's plans will bring to you. Deliverance from the evil man and deliverance from the strange woman. So it's talking about the development of character. 
It's talking about God's plan leading you out of temptation or difficulty into victory. There are some stories in the Bible that are great exercises for us to see how God's plan will lead you through. We've got the story of David. David was anointed to be king in secret because Israel had a king. Saul was the king. And he started off good, but he let his own thinking, his own desires, and his own thoughts lead him away from what God's word had commanded him to do. And so David is the man that God found, a man after God's own heart, he's called. He fights Goliath, wins the great battle, wins the great victory over Goliath, and delivers the children of Israel in the process. And then he becomes part of Saul's household. But then Saul gets jealous of him because the people like David more than they like Saul. And so he decides, Saul decides, that he's going to kill David. David is being pursued by the king. Spends several years with the king trying to kill him. So he's pursued by the government. He's persecuted by the government. That's what the king is, isn't it? And David's understanding, not just of God's plan for his life, David could have taken the position that when the prophet Samuel came and anointed him to be king of Israel, he could have tried to accelerate that and bring that to, to bear from day one. But he didn't do that. He recognized that the word of God said, touch, God, touch not God's anointed. And so he endured hardship, the hardship of being away from his home, the hardship of being on the run, the hardship of not being known as the one that God has chosen. And there are several times in the story of David where Saul was made available to him and it made it an easy situation to kill. And there were those in his army, his followers, that were known as David's mighty men of valor that said that those opportunities to kill Saul were the work of God to deliver Saul into his hand. It had been real easy for David to agree with them and put Saul to death. I wonder how things would have turned out if that was the way it went. I wonder if there would have been less of an anointing for David to be the king if he yielded to that kind of thought. It would have been super easy for him to do it. But David had set himself in position to keep himself steady even when situations like that occurred. In other words, he had a plan from God's word that kept him on track. Even after the king, the most powerful person in the land, pursued him. There are a couple of other stories in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3 tells us about these three Hebrew children 
that are in positions of honor in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. You remember the, the story of how David and these three guys petitioned the one who had charge over them not to eat the things that violated the law of Moses, but they put the word of God first place. And so doing, it provided them a, a place of rulership, a place of favor with the king. But Nebuchadnezzar comes along and he builds this super high structure. We don't know what the image was. I think a lot of times we just assume that it's Nebuchadnezzar's image, but the Bible really doesn't say that. And so he issues, the king issues a decree that at certain times of day, the choir or the orchestra will start with the sound of music and as everybody hears that sound they're to bow down and worship this image but these three Hebrew children have a plan the wisdom of God gives them discretion or gives them a plan for how to conduct themselves so somebody rats them out and tells the king that they won't worship the image. And so King Nebuchadnezzar brings them before him. Let's start reading in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if you be ready... At what time you hear the sound of the music and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, well, in other words, we'll act like this never happened. We'll give you a chance to make it right. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the burning, the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Folks, this is the crux of the story right here. They've already committed themselves to the right path before they ever got in trouble, before they were ever called before the king. The wisdom of God that became a part of their who they are, the real them, the man on the inside. Devised a plan for what to do if or when the king finds out about their rebellion. So they said, O king, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. In other words, we don't have to think this out. We don't have to go study. We don't have to spend time in prayer to find out what we should do. We're ready for you. Folks, we need to be ready for the work of the devil before he ever shows up. We need to have a plan based on the wisdom of God, which comes from the Word of God, that holds us steady when things escalate or when circumstances get hotter and more, under more pressure. They said, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. If it be so. Now, a lot of times the church has mangled these scriptures to indicate that if it be so, 
Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy images nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. I learned in Sunday school that these three guys said, King, if you throw us in the burning fiery furnace, then God will deliver us. Or if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to worship the image you set up. Well, folks, if God doesn't deliver them, they're going to be dead. So the idea or the thought that they would not worship the golden image if God let them die in the, the burning fiery furnace doesn't make sense. The if refers to what Nebuchadnezzar does. Nebuchadnezzar said, if you worship the golden image when the music sounds, then we'll treat this like it never happened. But if you don't worship the golden image when the music sounds, I'll throw you in the burning fiery furnace. And who's going to be on your side then? So their response is a response to what Nebuchadnezzar has said he will do. He said, if it be so, if you do throw us into the burning fiery furnace, our God will deliver us from your hand. But if not, if you don't throw us in, we're not worshiping the image. Now, folks, there's a real easy way to find in these scriptures that that's the way it's supposed to be, that that's what it refers to. And that's the king's response. The king's just been told by three guys that are a part of his administration, three guys that have prominent places of influence over his kingdom. He's just been told, we're not going to do what you said to do. He understands that they've just spit in his eye, so to speak. He understands that they've refused to obey his command. Now, if the issue is whether or not God delivers them, then it would have been a real simple thing for him to say, well, let's see, and throw them in the burning fiery furnace. But the reality of their defiance is shown in his reaction. Verse 19, then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than it was wont to be heated. He's responding to their defiance. He gets so full of rage and fury that his visage was changed. That means he stopped looking like a man in his rage. So he commands the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it's ever been heated before. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace was exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, we just read a couple of verses before that these were the mightiest men in his army. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Looks like their preparations ahead of time paid off. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, Come forth and come hither. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men 
upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was there a hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speaketh anything against, amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver them after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, folks, let me remind you of Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein according to do all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. They just made their way prosperous, and they attained a higher position because of their trust in God. The Bible tells us a similar story about Daniel a few chapters over. Daniel becomes the, the target of some other people in the administration of Nebuchadnezzar, or Darius, who was king by that time, I guess. And so they brought an accusation against Daniel. But the only thing they could find wrong with the guy is that he prayed a lot. And so they went to the king and deceived the king about, uh, from their original purpose, their true motives, and had him make a decree that for a 30-day period, anybody that bowed down to worship any god besides him, Darius the king, would be thrown in the lion's den. Well, once they get that on the books, they brought the accusation against Daniel, and then the king realized what had taken place. But the king's word and the king's law was something that could never be broken. So he can't exempt Daniel, even though he trusts Daniel, even though Daniel has great favor in his eyes. So he throws Daniel into the lion's den and then spends, he spends, the king spends a restless night, sleepless night, worrying about what's going to happen and goes out the next day and calls out for Daniel and Daniel answers. He says, the, the Lord shut the lion's mouths. And so he winds up, the king winds up throwing the deceitful people that were behind this operation into the lion's den in Daniel's place. Same thing happened with Daniel. He was promoted even higher in Darius's organization or in his kingdom. Folks, the word of God is always your plan. It's an amazing thing to me how many Christians turn away from what the Bible says that Jesus bought for us. People that would go to the death and claim that Jesus paid the price for our sins ignore the fact that Jesus provided his body for our diseases. Folks, we live in a day where you can find the information you want in virtually any area in any respect. And that's certainly true where the Bible is concerned. It's not hidden. Scriptures aren't hidden that declare what Jesus did to heal our bodies. It's easy to find scriptures. There are tons of them that talk about God showing his character and his love and his mercy. 
by providing healing for our physical bodies. It's amazing to me how many, certainly the majority of Christians in the Western world at least, it's amazing how many people are willingly, who willingly refuse some of the benefits of Jesus' resurrection. Folks, we live in a day when the access to information is unlimited, but there's never been a time where it's been more important for us to choose the right sources of our information. And the first great source of our information that we should put first and foremost is the Word of God. This world is creeping toward a situation where as Christians we're going to have to choose someplace along the line between God's word and the forces of government. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is praying for the church. He says, beginning in verse 16, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The spirit of wisdom and and revelation in the knowledge of him. The spirit of wisdom. Well, then wisdom is the spirit then. I've been uh, praying over the last several years. There's something that the Lord has prompted me about. That it became the source of my prayer. For the last few years. And that was an increase in the anointing of God to teach the word. And after I prayed that, now don't get me wrong, I've been praying these prayers in Ephesians chapter 1 and also chapter 3. Since I first found them in 1981, maybe 1982, But there were some things that I started to see that I believe that God led me, the Holy Spirit led me to see in a different light. And I began to consider what it is that I'm praying for. I just told the Lord that I wanted a double measure of the anointing upon his upon. Uh, the anointing of, upon me to speak the word, to teach the word of God. I'm not seeking for something to make a name for myself. But I began to consider what would a double measure of the anointing to teach look like? What am I really asking for? And how would that come? I don't believe that God's sitting back holding out on me until I come to the place where I ask him for something. So what would that anointing look like? And it came to my understanding, and it was right here all the time. Could have seen it anywhere along the way. A greater anointing to teach the word would have to be based on a greater measure of revelation. 
I'm not holding out on you. I'm not trying to keep some special knowledge of the word held back from me so that I can feel like I've got something over on you. So a greater measure of anointing to teach the word would have to begin with a greater measure of revelation. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, over the last year and a half, maybe two years, I've received more revelation from things that I thought, in things that I thought I already knew than at any other time in my life. The revelation of the gospel of the kingdom of God was something that I never saw before. Where Jesus identifies what the gospel of the kingdom is when he responds to the disciples asking them, him to teach them to pray. Jesus prays, thy kingdom come, and then identifies it. Thy will be done on earth here even as it is in heaven. God created this world to manifest his will and his purpose. Just like his will and his purpose is manifested in heaven. Now the difference of course is we have an enemy here that sets himself against us. And there are no enemies in heaven. But that in and of itself is not enough to keep God's will from taking place here on the earth. The revelation that I received about Jesus. Living a life of faith, not just starting to live a life of faith when he entered into the ministry when he was 30 years old. But the fact that he has operated in God's eternal law, which is identified in Numbers chapter 14, verse 28, where God told Moses to say to the people, as truly as I live, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. When Jesus was 12 years old and left behind at the temple, he's astonishing the rabbis He's asking them questions they can't answer. And he's providing questions or answers to their questions that don't just go beyond somebody his age, but that are beyond their comprehension for how he couldn't have this knowledge in him. I've received some revelation over the last couple of years about the authority that God has given to us and the limits of the devil's authority. And these were things that when I saw them, I wondered why I hadn't seen them before. What would keep me from not recognizing these things before? And none of these things that have been revealed to me or that I'm taught are some deep spiritual revelation. I guess God is limited to how deep he can go by how deep I am. These are just simple truths. But they've opened up my relationship with him in ways that I can't even describe. So again, back to this Ephesians chapter 1 prayer. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling 
And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named. Not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet. And gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Folks, we live in a day where our world is being governed by one crisis after another. Now, the devil hasn't changed. In this respect, the devil is like God, and he doesn't change. And in that respect, what I'm talking about is he's the master of distraction. Did you notice that a couple of weeks ago, the stories in the news were about how these election, 2020 election audits were taking place? But all of a sudden, the coronavirus and the vaccine and all that stuff pushed all those things off the headlines. The devil will always try to throw fear at us. And so we're beginning to hear about this Delta 14 variant. The devil works the same way against mankind as a whole as he works against you and me as individuals. He wants to get us distracted by the things that are going on around us. Remember Jesus said, take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. There's a lot of deception going on about this corona stuff, about this COVID-19 and the vaccines too. Folks, there is no vaccine for the coronavirus. According to Webster's Dictionary, a vaccine, hear me out, according to Webster's Dictionary, a vaccine is a biological preparation that provides active immunity against a specific infectious disease. Meaning if there's a vaccine for some virus, it creates an, um, an unbreakable or an unpenetrable Immunity. If you take the vaccine, you can't get the virus. There's nothing like that that's being offered to anybody at this point in time. Now, I don't think it's my responsibility or my place to tell you what you ought to do about the vaccine. I have personally decided that I will not take a vaccine. And there's a couple of reasons for it. First of all, I've already contracted it. And so I have natural immunity. I've got the antibodies in my system. Last year, sometime during the summer, I'm not sure exactly when it was, But sometime during the summer, my family and I went out to Palm Springs to spend a couple of days. And about the second day that we were there, I had fallen asleep on the couch watching TV. And I woke up from a dead sleep. And I was, I don't know how to describe it. I was in another world. I was hallucinating. 
the room was spinning. I've never experienced anything like that. And I just casually said within myself, what is this? And I heard the, the voice of my own spirit say, this is the COVID virus. Well, I tried to get from where I was into the bathroom and was unsuccessful. And so for a period of time, I was able to crawl to another, another place. And so for a period of time, I just began to confess the word. I, I began to rebuke the virus. And so over the course of time, I found out, I realized from the clock on the desk that it was two hours before I was able to get back to sleep. Woke up the next morning and everything was fine, so I had COVID for two hours. Now, some people might say, hear that and say, well, why didn't the Word of God keep you from getting it to begin with? I really don't have an answer. But I do know from the Scriptures that some storms are meant to be rebuked and some storms are meant to ride out. Jesus rebuked the storm on two occasions during his earthly ministry. But the storm that Paul was in when he was on his way to Rome, he had to ride out. So some things work like that, I guess. Some things are cut off before they occur. Some things are ridden through. I'm okay with it either way, to be honest with you. So I've got the antibodies in my system so that I don't have to worry about being contracting the coronavirus, whether it's the Delta 14 or whatever else. According to the research that's been done, a study that's recently been published, the natural immunity is 700% better than the immunity, the so-called immunity that they say you can get from the vaccine. So it'd be useless for me to take the vaccine. It'd be counterproductive. Now with that knowledge, it's easy for me to say I'm not going to take the vaccine. So I'm not saying that you should take the same position. There's something else about these vaccines that bother me. And that is all three of the vaccines contain fetal tissue from aborted children. And so for the first time in the history of this country, there's a market demand for abortion, aborted tissue. I have a strong moral objection to that. So folks, the best recommendation I can give you is to pray about whatever you think you need to do. And don't just go through the motions, but mix faith with what you do. I'm not one who's in a position to say that God wouldn't tell anybody to get a vaccine. I'm not against vaccines. I'm all for the ones that work. Doesn't look to me like the coronavirus vaccine fits that description, but that's just me. But we live in a day 
where it is of utmost importance to mix faith with whatever you do. And the way you do that is by simply using those words. Father, I mix faith with this. I've got a prescription that I take every day for this Parkinson's thing. And every day I say, before I take these pills, Lord, I mix faith with this. And I want you to know that I'm trusting you as my healer, not the medication. And according to the doctors or the physician assistants that I've spoken with over the years, I get much better results from this than, in, than they're accustomed to anybody getting. Now, is that God's best? No, I don't think so. But things are what they are. I get some relief from the medication, so I take it. But I never forget to mix faith with it. So whatever you're believing God for, or whatever situation arises, we need to make it a matter of faith. And we need to trust the wisdom of God to provide us a plan. You may remember in James chapter 1, James says, count it all joy when you fall into, into diverse temptations. That means adversities or hardships. Trouble in life. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire or complete. And then it goes on to say, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Now, why would he throw wisdom in there in the middle of trouble that we're counting as joy? Because, folks, when we get ourselves in the middle of trouble or find ourselves in the middle of trouble, getting ourselves is kind of implying that we bring it on ourselves, which a lot of the trouble that we have in life is certainly true, falls into that category. But when we find ourselves in trouble, God's got a plan for you to get out. And that plan comes as a result of the wisdom of God that rests in our heart. Whatever we're facing, whether it's adversity as individuals or trouble for our family or, the man, or mankind as a whole, the plan of God will deliver us and set us right back in the smack dab in the middle of God's will for our lives. Jesus is a victorious Savior. Winning is always a part of what he has for us. Take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. Lord, I also thank you that you order the steps of your children. You lead us and guide us. You bring us into victory in every situation, in every test or trial. Thank you, Lord, that you are always good. 
We thank you for the blood of Jesus that removes our sin and the body of Jesus which heals our sickness and disease. We thank you, Father, that the chastisement of our peace was upon Jesus so that all of our needs are met. In the mighty and matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, Father. Amen. Amen.